You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. And we are continuing the Anything But Deer Hunting series today with special guest Tony Peterson. Now, you've probably heard Tony Peterson on this podcast before to to and we just get crazy and we talk about a whole bunch of random things. But on today's episode, we're actually going to see the professional side of Tony and he's going to talk about one of his favorite things to do. Uh, and he, as he puts it, it's kind of a 1A, 1B, meaning he loves deer hunting, but he really loves working with dogs and pheasant hunting and upland birds. So, uh, so that's what this episode is about. He talks about the barriers to entry, how much it costs to get started, uh, a little bit about strategy, you know, where to look for pheasants, where to look for, you know, upland game. He also provides, you know, if you can't find pheasants or have the opportunity at pheasants, some other uh, wing shooting or like doves and woodcocks and, and where to look for those and how to find those and things like that. So it's just another awesome episode another great continuation of this series and we've been talking to a, a a lot of experts i would say people who have spent thousands and thousands of hours over their life doing what they love outside of deer hunting and uh, i figured i wanted you know i wanted to share that with you guys so huge shout out to tony for taking time out of his day uh, i just want to do some housekeeping some stuff I, I usually don't do at the beginning of these episodes and the first thing that i want you to do is make sure that you go to the sportsman's empire or the nine finger chronicles and leave a five-star review on itunes or wherever you download this podcast let everybody know how awesome it is and uh you know when when you do that i get a little bit more traction i get to share this content with the rest of the world i get a lot of you guys reaching out to me on instagram and you know basically saying hey dude i you know don't change i love the content you're putting out all that stuff but now go tell the world about it go to itunes or wherever you download your podcast uh, leave a review and then make sure if there's something that you like on instagram you know, I really do feel I'm being banned on Instagram. And so the more, I'm guessing that the more people that like my stuff, that share my stuff uh, on social, they'll be able to, you know, maybe I'll get out of that rut at some point, but I doubt it. So, you know, just make sure you're following along on Nine Finger Chronicles and Sportsman's Empire on Instagram, Facebook, and, uh, and Go Wild as well. So, uh, go check out make sure you guys go check out go wild there's uh I, you know we post a lot of stuff on that uh second or third or whatever fourth or whatever um one thing that i really want to uh, hound on this um this this off season is just like this real positive vibe you know i'm going to share a little a quick little story and so i reached out to a person and I told them that I was hunting near their property. 
and they the initial vibe that I got was less good luck congratulations good deer in the area and more like hesitation more uh what's you know what are you shooting because we only shoot this caliber of deer and 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 we may want to make sure that you're doing you know what we're doing and things like that and I think there's a lot of stuff in hunting we can control and a lot of stuff that we can't control and on things that we can't control what we really need to do is just let that let that stuff slide man especially when we're talking about other hunters right and and passing judgment on other hunters and things like that so what i really want to you know talk about in the upcoming weeks is really this this notion that we should be supporting each other Uh, chris powell on the houndsman xp podcasts you, you know he he's a he's a huge he's adamant about that because really we're all in the same basket and then uh outside of that bat inside of that basket there's a lot of infighting and so you know people on the outside of our bucket look at us as hey they're all hunters and on the inside of the bucket we're all like oh i only do this or i only you know we're we're segregating ourselves from each other and uh, it's just not a good so i'm 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 the proponent of good vibes man we gotta we have to support each other and continue to do what we do because as i've seen in recent months that the lawmakers aren't necessarily on our side uh the sometimes the the conservation the departments aren't necessarily on our side because they're influenced by the politicians and who influences the politicians whoever has money and so a lot of what we're seeing what i've been seeing lately is just these nasty bills like colorado this is no joke wanted to try and banned hunting to anybody who was 18 years old or younger that is absolutely ridiculous so but that's a perfect example of people coming after our rights and after our natural resources who have no business doing that and so at some point it's going to be it's you're going to have to fight fire with fire so um you know just just stay informed is another thing that i want to tell everybody stay informed you know, if you love pheasant hunting, learn as much about pheasant hunting as you can. If you love deer hunting, learn as much about rules and regulations and, and stay in the loop on all of this stuff and learn as much as you can because uh, knowledge is power. And when you have power, then, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to stop, especially if we're working all together. So that's a crazy way of saying, hey, we need to work together and we need to unite our voices and let everybody know that, hey, we... Uh, you know, we're not going to stand for some of this stuff. So hopefully that made sense, but I do have to do some commercials real quick. If you're looking for a saddle, saddle hunting accessories, I'm really excited this year. I have some more public land whitetail hunts uh, that are going to be scheduled. And so I'm really looking to using my saddle more than I did last year. Last year was just a weird year, uh, really a really quick year as far as whitetail hunting from a tree stand or a saddle is concerned and so i was tagged out really early here in iowa and so uh, if you're looking for a saddle saddle hunting accessories climbing sticks platforms and then the knowledge to flatten the learning curve and, and properly use all of the stuff that i just mentioned head on over to tethered's website and uh check out everything about saddle hunting there wasp archery discount code i'm just going to say this right off the bat discount code nfc20 and that's going to get you 20 percent off of all um 20 off all your your purchases there at at wasp and uh, man awesome material the majority of their heads are still made in america uh awesome design awesome people and, and a broadhead that absolutely destroys whatever it hits uh, even on, in the marginal shots so uh, i was talking about this on an interview recently that i that i gave and it was about you know total arrow weight and things like that and so i shoot 500 and uh, 524 total uh, grains total arrow weight and so inside 40 yards with that weight at 30 inch draw and 70 pounds I'm crushing whatever I hit and so I'm going through ribs I'm going through bones and then that is also ampli- amplified with a fixed blade right so I shoot a mechanical for whitetails in Iowa 
you put a fixed blade on, it's going through even easier because there's no loss of energy with the opening of the mechanical broadhead. So uh, go check out Wasp and their lineup of fixed blades and mechanicals, wasparchery.com, badass company. Uh, next on the list is Hunt Stand. And I'll tell you this, when I was on, you know, when I was walking and uh, doing some shed hunting, what, two days ago on uh, on a, my new farm that I got access to, the, the, the cool thing about this farm is it holds a lot of deer. And so... I was able to get out. It's wet ground. You can see the tracks. You can see the trails. You can see where they're bedding. You can see all the rubs on the farm. And there are certain parts of this farm that were just shredded. And it's a no-brainer for deer to hang out in this area. And so I I went in. I started marking my, my places on hunt stand. And I was just like, hey, man, I uh, uh, hunt stand you know, just documenting and in journaling everything that I found, where trail, where really heavy trails meet terrain features, how those tr- terrain features kind of, uh, you know, affected deer movement, where the sign was, and really what that does is it allows you to just find out where deer move. Uh, so go check out HuntStand.com and, and, and learn how you can journal and document everything that you see on the properties that you hunt. And while you're there, check out their Pro Whitetail platform. Uh, that's going to allow you to take it to the next level. Um, so go check out huntstand.com. And then last but not least, Vortex Optics, man. I'm, I'm trying to put a little pressure on Vortex to, I, I have an idea that I want to do with a couple of their guys. And so if you're if there's anybody from Vortex listening to this right now, uh, get back to me, man. I want to, I want to, I want to spread the word about Vortex and, and the Vortex system and, and the Vortex employees and all of the knowledge and passion that these guys have for the outdoors. On top of that, Vortex has a killer lineup of optics accessories like their new uh, tripods that have come out. Uh, they have spotting scopes, range finders, binoculars, rifle scopes, red dots, you name it, they have it. And uh, I, I feel like it's a, it's a no-brainer if you're if you're an American who loves the outdoors, whether it's watching birds or hunting or, or you know, just sitting out your window watching, get the best, you know, best optics on the market, and that's Vortex Optics. So vortexoptics.com, go check them out. Last but definitely not least, two percent for conservation. Okay, go. All you have to do is Google two percent for conservation, or what you need to do is just go to fishandwildlife.org. And read up on how you can start giving back to conservation and how you can get 2% for conservation certified. All right. So that's it. Um, that's it. You know, so huge shout out to all of the, you know, all of the brands that support this podcast. Huge shout out to all of you for listening. Uh, please subscribe, like, share, all that stuff. And then huge shout out to Tony for taking time out of his day. So let's get right into today's Anything But Deer Hunting podcast. Three, two, one. All right, on the phone with me today and returning guest, and I, I don't know why he continues to <laughs> to come on the podcast, but he does. Mr. Tony Peterson, how we doing? You know why I come back, buddy. I'm, I'm doing good. I'm doing good, man. Good, good, good. All right. Um, so, you know, we've BSed a lot about, well, really, whenever you're on, we BS about everything but deer hunting. Uh, we do we do talk a little bit about deer hunting, but today we're not going to talk about deer hunting at all. We're going to talk about other cool things that happen outside of deer hunting. And uh, you're, uh, you've been picked to talk about upland game, upland bird hunting. And uh, I feel like it's definitely an opportunity for people to get outside. Uh, and that's where I cut my teeth, man. I got a, I got a really quick story uh, to share, share with you. And it was the first time I ever went pheasant hunting. And my, my uncle had... Uh, what what are they called? It's like a lab wine rammer mix, but it it looked like a lab, but it was gray. Uh, so they yeah they call them a silver lab. Silver lab, and okay. You got to be really really careful who you say that to in the dog world because because like 
people get pretty fired up about that because it's not a true lab. Yeah. And yeah. But that's what that is. Well, uh, I don't care about those. Yeah. I don't either <laughs> at all. So, um, so, uh, his name was Cujo and he was, he, he was like a dog that I don't know how they trained him because this is the dog that they would just dump 50 pounds of old Roy out in front of a barn every week. And that's what he ate until he ate all his food and then he would go eat whatever was killed on the the road right and so he was a, a, a he was really friendly right and so this dog would go out and usually this dog would um this dog would wouldn't even jump the pheasant like he didn't really point he just chased him and then he got him and then brought him back like he wouldn't he wouldn't make him jump well anyway this one pheasant jumped out, and I shot it. And uh, actually, one second, one second. I got the I got the feathers. Okay. All right. Sorry, but this is and this this is the first pheasant I ever shot with my uncle and Cujo. And it was in a uh, northern Iowa, Sierra, like a, a buffer strip in between uh, all this ag. And uh, this, is, this is my first pheasant, dude. And I, I loved going pheasant hunting with my uncle, man. When, when was that? Like, what, what time frame are we talking? We're talking, like, maybe 1990. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And so. It, dude, Iowa back in the 90s, late 90s. Yeah. Whew, man, it was. Uh, pretty special situation oh yeah yeah and that was back in the day when i can i don't know i don't know about what you remember but what i remember is nobody was spraying their ditches nobody was uh cutting them or burning them or well maybe they'd burn them but they wouldn't there was still plenty of buffer strips there was plenty of habitat for these animals waterways for them to to nest in and now in iowa everybody's farming everybody's spraying everybody you know like and I had a guy on from the Iowa DNR a handful of um, uh, months ago, and he talked about this gigantic population decline in pheasants and pheasant hunting habitat. And he said that over the course of, man, uh, Interstate 80 runs from Davenport to Omaha. And he yep. said that over the course of like a 10-year period, three of that, three of those interstates that long had been removed from pheasant habitat in the state of Iowa. Yeah. I was literally yesterday talking to Sam Soholt about this. And he said that just not mowing a ditch and planting pollinators or whatever, just natural CRP, whatever you want in there is for every section line is four acres of cover. Yeah. And you think about that because I mean, it seems so, you know, it, it probably seems so weird to people now, but like when, when I grew up, I drove down to Iowa, I could get down there in an hour and we would push ditches all the time. Yeah. And the amount of birds that that supported, it, oh, yeah. it was, it was wild. Yep. And when we didn't, you know, when, when Cujo eventually died, uh, we would continue to do that. I mean, we just drove ditches, look for them and then get out or drive past them, walk back towards them and, and that's, that's, I mean, I just had so much fun doing that. Now I don't, I don't do it anymore, but the more I talk about it with you today, I want to, I want to start doing it again, man. Man, I, I can say that I was coming back. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, it remains to be seen what this winter does to the populations. Cause it's been a weird one mm-hmm. and probably not favorable to birds. Right. But I hunted, I've hunted Iowa quite a bit the last couple of years. And you know, is it back to like 1998 levels? Probably not, but yeah. Is it worth going? Yeah. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. I will say this, that there was a period of time while deer hunting and, and turkey hunting that I did not see or hear a lot of pheasants. And in the past, I w- I'm going to say five years, this is crazy because usually they nest and their habitat is some overlaps. I've seen the turkey population decline, but I've seen the pheasant population come back. And so I've seen a lot more on the roads. I've, I've jumped them, you know, while shed hunting and, and things like that. So it's looking, I would say it's, it's looking optimistic from my limited knowledge. 
Yeah. Well, last last year the bird numbers were really good. Yeah. And I and I'll say this: I know we're not supposed to talk about deer. I hunt a lot of public land in in Iowa for pheasants in places that are not known for the deer, mm-hmm. and the bucks that we push out of those sloughs are just as legit as those southern Iowa bucks. Man, yeah. it's it's pretty cool what you see out there when you're when you got a couple dogs and you're pushing some sloughs yeah. around. Yeah, it's uh, the overlooked pieces, uh, not mm-hmm. necessarily overlooked for pheasants, but. All right, so I, I kind of want to uh, go as far back as we can remember here, and I know that uh, our brains have been clouded by substances, <laughs> certain substances <laughs> over the over the years. But I want to go back as far as we can remember and uh, talk about how you got into upland bird hunting. Oh man, so <clears throat> I have been obsessed with dogs my whole life. And my mom would not allow dogs, could never have one growing up. And But my uncle Billy always had a male black lab and he was a pheasant hunting fiend. And yeah. so was my dad. My dad grew up in uh, kind of South central Minnesota in the heyday when they had birds all over. Mm-hmm. And so he and Billy, when I was growing up, you know, it was like every day yeah. they would go. And I couldn't wait to be old enough to go with them. And finally, they, they brought me, I would I would go with them, but not carry a gun until I turned 11. And then I shot my first rooster with them. And I remember it really well. And it was just one of those things where I was like, this, at some point, this is going to be a huge part of my life. And then, you know, in high school, a couple of buddies got bird dogs. And so we started, you know, that, that was back when you could get a license in Iowa for 55 bucks and drive down there. And we would knock on doors. And I remember just, you know, writing down the address of places on like a shell box mm-hmm. and just being like this, this old guy gave us permission. And we, we got, I wouldn't say we never got turned down cause we did, mm-hmm. but we got permission to hunt a lot of places just by knocking on doors and we hunted public land, we hunted ditches. It didn't matter. And it was just something that took hold. And then finally, yeah. when I got into a, a spot in my life where I'm like, I got a house getting married. Like I'm like, the first thing we did was buy a bird dog yeah and I have not looked back since yeah we've uh we've had a conversation before tony of like you like to deer hunt but it sounds to me like like it's a 1a 1b type scenario with with pheasant hunting big time yeah i mean and you know there's a lot of reasons for that right like people people who are just ate up with whitetail hunting have a hard time understanding that but it's been my job in some capacity for like 15 years now and you know you know how it is i mean it's just a different thing when you have to build a product around your hunts it's not it doesn't doesn't fill your cup up the same way yeah and for me i always needed something else then yeah you know like so pheasant hunting for me even though you know i did some work around it and you know it's it's not like totally divorced from my career it's just such a simpler pursuit that i can just go out and enjoy myself with my dogs and i don't need to worry about you know, trophy, whatever. And it just, it's, it's active, you know, because right in the middle of the deer season and you're like, Oh, I'm doing, you know, seven all day sits next week for sure. And you can go out and follow a dog around or two dogs around and just be active. You know, it's kind of like that, that Western, you know, even, even a whitetail hunt out West, but you know, a mule deer and antelope hunt, when you're a whitetail guy and you go do that, you're like, Oh man, it's fun to roam. Just see new country, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, on a previous episode of this series, I talked with uh, Chris Powell from the Houndsman XP podcast, and I, I talked with because I talked with Mark about fly fishing. All right, and and you can go to a store and buy a fishing pole. You don't have to feed the the you know you don't have to feed it. You don't have to uh, you know uh, take care of it, get it shots, things like that. When you're introducing a dog. Um, it's a whole different story, right? Yeah. And so first off, before we get into this, do- the dog part of it, I want to talk about is, is pheasant, let's talk about the entry level financial cost to become a pheasant hunter and if you can do it without a dog. Uh, you know, upland hunting in general is pretty cheap. Yeah. I mean, you don't need, you, you can get a fancy shotgun, you know, you can get a nice over under and spend a couple thousand bucks on it. But you don't need to mm-hmm. if you have a 20 gauge or a 12 gauge you're pretty set you know um boots 
a vest. It's a it's a simple proposition, and it, I like that part of it too because you know you know how it is when you go on a deer hunt and you're like, okay, well I've got you know eight stands packed up, and I got sticks, and I got this and that, and all my camping stuff, and all your bow hunting stuff, your backup bow hunting stuff, and it's just like a logistical nightmare to pack for those trips compared to when I go pheasant hunting. I'm like, okay, I got my shotgun, I got my shells, I got my dogs, some food, and it's like it. It's so, you always, I always leave my driveway and I'm like, I don't have enough stuff because yeah. I'm used to packing so much, but it's, it's pretty easy. I mean, it, the, the hardest part of getting into pheasant hunting, depending on where you live is just getting around birds, yeah. you know, and there's a, there's a perception out there that there are not wild birds out there to hunt. And even it depends where you are, of course. Yeah. But if it's not pheasants, you probably have a woodcock migration come through, or you might be able to go a couple hours and get to some grouse or something like that. But that generally, I hear so much negativity about wild bird populations, quail too. Mm -hmm. And then you go out on public land, and if you know what you're doing a little bit, you can have amazing upland hunting opportunities out there on public land. But it's just not you know like it's not going to be super easy a lot of times you're gonna have to put in a little bit of work yeah. but the birds are there yeah it's not like a south dakota manicured hunting farm where they have sorghum and, and corn planted just for pheasants no and you know the dirty little secret about that is if you travel to south dakota and you're paying to hunt there's like a 50 percent chance you're hunting planted birds yeah and so you know and it which whatever that's fine you know that's that's out east a lot too but I hear people say this all the time, you know, like they'll do it with the grouse, rough grouse cycle. They'll do it with the pheasant population. Quail's a big one because we've heard for so long that they're not doing well. And I just, I'm like, man, we find these birds in so many different states on public land and it's just all tied to the habitat and the cover that's available. And then just, just like deer hunting or whatever, it's like, okay, you pull up to 320 acres of CRP or it's got a cattail slew in the middle or whatever. If you hunt it the way people do, which there'll be a pounded path going right around the edge of the cover, mm -hmm. you're not going to do very well. But if you get into the thick stuff and you got a dog that knows how to work the cover and you take some time, those birds have us figured out. I mean, they've done they've done radio studies on them yeah. where those birds go right to the middle, they wait you out, and then they Come go right back. back. To the thing. Yeah, yeah. All right, and so the barrier to entry seems fairly simple uh, without the dog. All right. Now, throw that same question in with a dog. I want you to kind of talk about how much, uh, you know, what species might be the best, how much they, how much a puppy like that costs, what training entails, uh, and and then how to to implement them in a successful pheasant hunt. Man, how much time do we have? Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, high, high level, is, high level. This is this is my world, man. So people shop for dogs on a lot of different reasons right you hear people say i want a red lab they're shopping on color mm -hmm. right or i love the look of an english setter they're so pretty they got the eyebrows whatever i want that they don't factor in what what's the odds of you getting really good blood because that's the most important thing i don't i run labs because i do a, you know a lot of duck hunting and a lot of upland and I need a dog that's easy to train. Yeah. I don't I don't want even though I've trained a lot of dogs and I've worked in that space quite a bit, I don't want a dog that is is beyond my skill set. And you see that with people they're going, "Oh, I want a German dog because they have the beard. So I want a German wire hair, I want a draw hard or something." And it's like, "Do you know what those dogs were bred for? Have you worked with one?" Because the average person buying one is going to be way over their skis on a dog like that. Yeah. You know, so somebody with a lot of time and knowledge can turn those dogs. They could be freaking awesome. So I always tell people, I'm like, what's the most popular option out there? It's a lab or, a, you know, on the flushing side, it's a lab. On the pointing side, it's a German short hair, right? Then you got to find the blood. And if you go just to the lab world, we'll use that because that's the most common sport dog out there. Black labs, the that color is the dominant color. Everything yeah. else, so a yellow's next, you know, and then you've got chocolate, you've got the silvers we talked about, you got the reds. But if you want the highest odds of getting the blood you you want, like the, the, the drive you want, whatever else, the health checks, the genetic checks, all that stuff, the the biggest pool I have to fish from is black labs. Yeah. And so I always I always assume I'm gonna get a black lab. I don't care what color it is. But you start to look at that and go, okay, now I can spend 1500 bucks 
for a really well-bred one. And I'm going to have all of these different choices to choose from. So, you know, I can pick a dog that might be really small, which is what I like, uh, but loaded with drive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all this is assuming all the health checks are there, right? The eyes, the elbows, the hips, all that stuff. And then you go, okay, what, what do I really want out of this dog? And people will say, well, I want a dog that's really calm at home and just a Tasmanian devil in the field. Yeah. It's like that doesn't people will sell you that dog, but it doesn't really exist. Yeah. That was that was part of the reason the British lab thing got so popular. And it's not it's not that you can't get that dog, but that's you still have to train a dog to do that. Yeah. You know, yeah. and you can't have that burner out in the field unless it has the blood. Yeah. You can train a dog to be really nice at home, no, no, no matter how much prey drive it has, but you can't put prey drive in them. Yeah. You know, it's like if you think about kids and you're like, I'm going to introduce my kids to hunting and you have one kid who's like, give me that BB gun. I'm going to kill everything. And you have one kid that's shooting baskets like yeah. there's just something there, you know. Yeah. And so for me, I'm like, I need the the most drive I can buy. That's like real important. So I'm looking at dogs that are field trial champions and master hunter champions mixed together because I know those dogs are going to have the right health. They're going to be small athletes for sure, because you don't succeed in those either of those categories without being that, and they're going to be problem solvers. And so I, even though I don't care at all about running field trials or hunt tests, I want dogs that have been bred to solve problems and be real healthy and athletic. And you know, you get the right mix of that, that prey drive is going to be there. Yeah. And so not only does that count for a dog that's going to pick up the pheasant thing right away, because they know they get a snoot full of pheasant. They know they're like, I like this, yeah. you know, like just, it just is in them. But what I want is a dog that's like, throw that bumper for me until I fall over. Because yeah. then I always have a a reward for them. Yeah. You know, like no matter what we're training, if it's triple blind retrieves for ducks or whatever, if I have a dog that's like, I want to pick that bumper up and bring it back and I want you to throw it again, I can always train that dog with that reward. Yeah. And so it makes it just easier. I don't have to, I don't use e-collars on my dog. I don't have to come down on them hard because I know what they want to work for. And that, that makes my job easier and it translates to every part of their existence. Yeah. So how is that for a super long winded convoluted That's answer? The, yeah, that was good. Now let's talk about the actual cost. You know, you just mentioned something that I'm going to say is high level compared to someone who's thinking about buying their very first bird dog. And, okay. and so, I mean, from, from this point on, you've kind of talked about the blood and how important that is. But I have a feeling with good blood comes higher prices. Sure. And it depends what, what breed you're talking about, yeah. right? So if you if you take labs, you have the most options, so mm -hmm. there's more supply. So then the price, you know, you can yeah. find an amazingly well-bred lab for like 1500 bucks. Okay. And people will listen to that and they'll say, that's a ton of money. If you want to go get a field-bred golden, like not a, just a regular golden retriever with a yellow coat that's going to die of cancer at three years old, but an actual field bred golden, you're probably talking 2,500, 3,000 bucks. It's what people don't understand about this is the genetic time bombs that are in a lot of these breeds because they, you know, the goldens are a great example. They've been bred as show dogs and just because of popularity. And we watched this happen, you know, French bulldogs are going through this right now. Like, it happens with breeds and we like those, those lines suffer forever because of that, because we didn't pay attention to the breeding. And so what you're paying for is not just performance in the field or not having a sweetheart dog at home. You're paying for a dog that won't die when it's four years old. Yeah. And so people will say like, Oh, well, I can find an $800 dog here. And I'm like, okay, great. What's, what are the health checks? What happened to the parents and the grandparents? Because, you know, everybody gets a little sticker shock at the front end. And I get that, right? Mm -hmm. But if you've ever bought a dog and had it die from something genetic three, four, five, six years into its life, and you could go back in time and pay an extra $500 and have that dog back, yeah. everybody would do it. Yeah. And so you're, and if you look into like the genetic testing and some of the stuff that they do to ensure that they're, they're breeding properly, that stuff's expensive. Yeah. It just is, but you're buying insurance. Right. And so I would just say, and I hear this, people push back on that all the time. And I understand like a, a lot of people don't want to pay that much for a dog or they'll say, I don't need a dog. That's that good. That's fine. But you have to understand what you're getting into 
and you know a six hundred dollar Craigslist dog is a total question mark. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we've spent the money, we've done our research, we we got the dog that we want, and I know this is probably another breed specific type of answer, but what about the the learning curve, or, or I should not the learning curve, but the training curve from pup to field ready? I well field ready. I look at my dogs and I, I mean, I just look at dogs in general is I got to put in two years. The first two years is pretty training intensive. Yeah. And then I can kind of go on autopilot. doesn't mean the training, like beyond that point, it's sort of like, you're just, you're just like reinforcing. Mm-hmm. I mean, like they know what they need to do and people look at it and they go, I got a GS, I got a German short hair. I got to train it how to point. It's like, kind of like those, those dogs are going to know how to point. You got to train that dog to listen. And you got to train that dog for good recall. You got to train a dog for steadiness. And so you're, you're training them. You're not necessarily training them to do the things they do naturally. You're training them to do the unnatural stuff, right? Like being a, being a good dog at home and not jumping on everybody is unnatural. Okay. You know, for a lab to sit at your side and watch you shoot a duck and wait to go get it until it, until you send it is super unnatural. Yeah. And so you know, you, you're kind of using the natural stuff like natural hold and carry and different things like that. You're, you're encouraging that prey drive too, but really you're sitting there from eight weeks old. It's like, I'm encouraging eye contact. I'm encouraging you to understand like, this is a working relationship and you don't have a choice. Like you're going to sit, you're going to stay, you're going to do this and recall and steadiness. And some of those things are like, they take a long time, yeah. you know, and it, people move way too fast with it. Right. They're like, I'm, I'm sick of doing the same three drills every day and not throwing a bumper for my puppy when I know it wants it yet. And it's like, there's just a timeline to this stuff where they mature and it's different for males and females. It's different for different breeding, but it takes like two years, okay. but if you do it, you have a dog. And in, in that process, you're giving them exposure to, you know, gunfire exposure and then, as many birds as you can find. That's why I bring up the woodcock thing all the time. Like yeah. the more wild birds that dog gets into that you're hunting together throughout this process, once they're ready to be in the field, it's like, you just watch it. The whole thing start to gel. And then you start get to the, that, that world where they're like, they're not getting 150 yards out on you and you're screaming at them. They're staying close. Cause they know this is where the action happens. And it's, yeah. it's such a freaking beautiful thing, man. Yeah. That's awesome. Let's talk about now the, um, the, what to look for. Okay. In the white tail world, we, we're always trying to find where deer live and how to, I don't know, like a bed to food pattern or, or finding where they live and, and then jumping them. And so let's talk about a guy who, who wants to get into pheasant hunting. He, he really doesn't know much about the bird or the habitat they live in. How, how do you educate yourself or what do you look for for habitat where upland birds live so you can go out and hunt them? Man, but, you know, pheasants is probably the easiest to kind of highlight this, but I scout pheasants just like I scout deer a lot of times. I mean, I'll go I'll go through the aerial photos and look for cattail sloughs and I'll, I'll toggle between layers where it's like a topo layer that shows you the wetland and then I'll switch over to the aerial photos to look at it. But if it's wet and low, it's usually going to have some birds in it or birds on the edge. And everybody kind of thinks, like you mentioned, the South Dakota thing with the paths and the you know groomed milo fields mm-hmm. and whatever. But when you when you're hunting, like mostly, unless you have awesome permission somewhere, it's thicker, nastier stuff than you think. Like you, if you turn on the Sportsman's Channel and you watch a hunting show and they're shooting roosters, they're going to be in knee high grass. And those birds are going to sit tight. And I almost guarantee you on every one of those shows, those birds were planted there. Yeah. They're not wild. Like when you go hunt wild birds, that nice wavy knee high grass doesn't, I mean, there might be birds in there at some points, but really you're going to be in thicker cover, yeah. you know, like, so what I do is I look at it like whitetails, right? I'm like, okay, how far away is the food? Is there a cut cornfield they're flying into in the morning and then walking back out to, um, when you get out there and you look at like a, let's say a quarter section of CRP grass, it might all look the same, but you start getting in there and there'll be like edges, just like when you're hunting whitetails where there's like, yeah, there's waist high grass here. And then there's like this kind of woody stem stuff here. And then you start getting into those edges. That's where those birds are for some right. reason. And then, and then you always think about overhead cover. 
because predation in the day for them is always hawks. You know, like they're they're always thinking about what's over my head. Gotcha. And so they're you know just just learn to read the cover, and then it's like you just run a pattern. It's just like fishing. You know, yeah. like if you pull up to a point and all the smallies are stacked up on the downstream side or whatever, it's like okay, I know there's another point up there. I'm gonna go try that. If you get in there and you jump a rooster at noon in this spot where there's this edge and you're, you know, 400 yards away from the corn here. And it's like, okay, there's a, there's a reason he was there. It wasn't random. Yeah. And so you start thinking about that stuff, but it's most of it is just getting out there and putting on the miles and not walking the same routes. Everybody does. Everybody gets to the outside edge and they want to walk it or they want to walk the edge of the like very obvious cattail to grass, yeah. whatever. And those deer, those pheasants figure that stuff out so fast, man. Yeah. And so from a strategy standpoint, you kind of, you kind of touched on it there. You know, we, we, whether you have, let me ask you this. Is there a different strategy when you have a dog and when you don't have a dog? Yeah. When you have a dog, you go out and have a ton of fun. And when you don't have a dog, <laughs> you stay home and play Nintendo with your daughters. There you go. I like that you know, strategy. I, I would say if you don't have a dog you really got to get into something tight, you know, like a waterway uh, that runs through a field or the ditches we talked about, or a buff, or like a buffer strip, because, you know, pheasants are just runners, man. Like not all of them, some of them are hiders, but most of them, if given the chance, they're not going to fly. They're just going to run. Yeah. And you're not going to know they run. And it, you know, you get into too big a cover and you don't have a dog. That's a pretty rough go. Yeah. I gotcha. I gotcha. So, it, a dog is the difference between fun and no fun. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know, man. Like you could go to prom by yourself. Right. Right. But like, I don't know. Would you want to? <laughs> so <laughs> I want you to elaborate on that. What you were about ready to say, like that statement, like, like going to prom by yourself or what going to prom with a hot babe. Sure. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Cool. I mean, if you go by yourself, you could have a great time, right? Yeah, you could. But what are, the odds are way better <laughs> if you actually have a date. There you go. So. There you go. All right. Uh, I like that. <laughs> um, okay. So we're out there. We have a dog. We don't have a dog. Um, and now it's time to actually walk. Is there a a strategy to where, I don't know, you, you work your way back to the truck or you work from the truck or you make a circle or is there a specific pattern or, um, or is there a, a, a thick to thin method or something like that that uh, tends to work the best? Um, for me, it's always about the wind. Okay. So when I, when I pull up to a spot, because I've already scouted it or already hunted it, I know I'm taking this route and this – you know, this back corner of this slough looks like it's going to be best. So I want the dogs to have the best win there. Mm -hmm. So you're always, you know, it's like sitting in a tree stand. Like you're always like, what can I get away with? What's the best win for me? How does this work? Because, you know, those those dogs, if you if you have, have a dog with the best nose out there and you work it with the wrong wind, the stuff you see constantly is maddening. They go, they come back, they go, they cut back, they go, they cut back because they're always trying to work the wind and you never flush as many birds as you do if they're just using the wind correctly. Mm -hmm. And so you're always thinking about that. The other thing I'm always thinking about is the conditions. If it's really calm, you're going to make a lot of noise and it's, you, you got to kind of factor in like, what's my route? Like, am I going to just bust through the thickest cover possible when it's really calm? It's pretty rough, right? Like, or if you have like a nice 15 mile per hour wind and they're not going to hear you until you get real close, kind of changes your whole strategy a little bit. But I always I always look at it and go, I know kind of the route we're going to hunt. We'll start it, and it's, it's sort of like winter scouting deer. You're like, okay, we made it to this point, but look at how interesting that is. Or I yeah. didn't know this waterway was this good a cover, or, you know, these willow thickets aren't what we need. So you kind of adapt, but it's it's always like, how do I give my dogs the best chance? Yeah, And that's all, almost always win. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So wind plays uh, another important role. Uh, is there, you know, like we talk about pressure or high pressure sometimes. It tends to get deer moving. Uh, rainstorms tend to get deer moving or, you know, some type of precipitation event. Is there any type of weather condition that brings the best odds or is optimal over another condition? Fresh snow. Fresh snow? Well, yeah, man. I mean, I like... 
I like a good wind when I'm pheasant hunting, like 15, 20 miles an hour. It's good. Um, cool is always better that, you know, if there's a little moisture in the air, they can, it, that's, that's not a bad thing, but man, fresh snow, they just pheasants for whatever reason. I don't know why they don't run a lot in fresh snow. I mean, it's obviously it's harder for them to run, but they'll hold tight. I mean, it, my dogs, my dogs will catch a handful of birds a year and it's always when it's just a fresh snow. No, yeah. they don't want to get up, but that's when you get, you know, so, you know, and I'm running flushers, so it'd be different with a pointer. I mean, it'd still be good with a pointer, but I, I don't, I get the best flushes possible when there's five inches of fresh powder and you get out there in the morning and those birds just do not want to run. So those dogs are, they'll work close and your flushes are almost unfair. Like when you, when you hit those conditions, yeah. right. Instead of having a day where you're like, Oh, I shot, you know, 10 times and I got two birds or I shot 10 times. And I got three birds or whatever. You're like, I've shot three times today and I got three birds. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just because yeah. your shot opportunities are so awesome. Yeah. Why do you, why do you like pheasant hunting so much? The dogs. I listen. I think pheasants are badass. I think they're yeah. the best thing we got out of China. Like <laughs> they are. Not, not. I mean, I've hunted. I've hunted. You know, the westerns, like you know, sharpies and prairie chickens. I've hunted quail quite a bit. I've hunted rough grouse a ton. Woodcock, ducks. I love them all. But nothing, nothing gives the dog better work than a wild rooster. Yeah. Like they just, they try so hard and they're so sneaky. And I just, I love that aspect of it. And I love the fact that you, you like, when you know that happens, we, we hunt cover all the time. It's like cattails where I can't see my dog for, you know, most of the day. So I have to listen to them, like li literally listen to their tail. And I can tell when they're getting birdie or not, or you get a glimpse of them and they run by and you can tell whether they're on something or not. Like they're just, it's so freaking fun. Like yeah. that, that connection of working with dogs that is like, you have that legit partnership where you're both like on the same page is the best. Gotcha. Cool. All right. So here's the sales pitch uh, time of the, the podcast where, you know, someone's listening to this and they are looking into picking up some, a, a different out, outdoor activity, um, pitch them pheasant hunting and why they should give it a try. I would say you just got to see a rooster flush. Yeah. Like you, you just got to have a rooster flush in front of you. It's just, it's just awesome. Like we, my buddies and I were talking about this at the end of the season, you know, it's, it's kind of like it boils down to like your deer season, right? Like people see the picture you posing with your buck and they're like, Oh, you had a good season. They don't know a whole lot about what it took to get there. Like right. there's so much missing. And we were talking about that where it's like, we have times where we'll hunt for six, seven hours and you haven't fired a shot. Yeah. And then you get that flush and you're like, it's just so worth it every single time. But I would, I would say it's not just pheasants. Like there's, there are good opportunities out there. And if you're, if you're listening to this and you're like, I want to hunt something with my dog or I just want to wing shoot. Like I want to hunt something. There's dove opportunities out there that are actually pretty good in a lot of the Midwest and the East, the woodcock migration, People don't, you know, there's like a little subculture that really likes it, especially in the pointing dog world, but you can find woodcock coming through in October in a lot of places where you would not think. Like I, I, I sit here in my house in the twin cities in the suburbs. And if I'm driving to pick up the girls or something from school, I'll see woodcock flying and know that it's on. I mean, it's pretty reliable anyway, but I can go on public land that I wouldn't hunt for anything else. Like I've, like I've been in there plenty. Like it's not worth it for me to go deer hunted or whatever. And I know at certain points there'll be a good woodcock hunt waiting for me there. Yeah. In a, in a totally unconventional kind of environment, you know. Okay. All right. And so, um, where would you, if if people are looking for resources uh, to read up on or, uh, you know, study or learn more about. Uh, upland game and how to properly hunt or, or train dogs or things like that. Do you have a, a recommendation? Yeah, I, I probably shouldn't say this cause I work for meat eater now, but I love gun dog magazine. Yeah. I work for gun dog, you know, and obviously they have a huge digital presence presence too. Um, I worked for them for a long time and Callie over there is doing a, just a badass job with that pub. Yeah. Uh, but you can find, I mean, we, we're starting to cover some dog training stuff at meat eater and start to cover some of this stuff. You know, like you can, 
you can find a lot of upland content a lot of it is built around sort of these bucket list species a lot of western stuff and then a lot of the pheasant and more domestic or you know i shouldn't say domestic like more midwest eastern type stuff is built around these opportunities that they're paying for them yeah and there's a lot of and i i know i'm going to sound worse than i mean to but there's a lot of like high-fiving around birds that were raised under a net in a pen mm -hmm. that, and you're going to look at that and go well geez this looks really easy yeah like no, no no if you're dealing with like a public land rooster in a certain state that's a different thing than that but right. those birds are still there and the opportunities are still there right cool all right so i was thinking about this Did, correct me if i'm wrong didn't the pheasant become i guess you want to say it was brought over from china but what made it you know uh wasn't there like a, a captive pheasant breeding facility that got hit in a storm or something like that and that's how they were introduced into the wild and they they kind of flourished from there i don't i don't know i'm sure that that's happened mm -hmm. um i don't i think it was like i don't think it was a one-off event yeah they got them here you know what i mean like yeah. i think they i know they brought them over as a game bird but yeah i guess i don't really know yeah cool it was a good move either way yeah either way right either <laughs> way well, I tell you what, Tony, man, I really appreciate you coming on today and uh, and pushing uh, upland birds on us. And uh, thank you for your time and good luck, man. Yeah, buddy. Thank you. All right. And there you have it. Another episode in the books. Huge shout out to Tony. Huge shout out to all of you. Huge shout out to Tethered, Wasp, Hunt Stand, and Vortex. Uh, please support the brands that support this podcast. And last but not least positive energy, positive attitude, good vibes. I know, especially in my life, sometimes uh, I, I try to live by the positive energy, the positive vibe motto, but sometimes even my motto and in, in my day gets cloudy with negative energy and uh, I have to take a step back, take a couple deep breaths, ask myself, is this worth it? And then get right back on to being positive and uh and that's it man so good vibes in good vibes out if you're gonna be in a tree wear your safety harness and if you want to be on this podcast man hit me up <laughs>